This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Continuing with our fugitive episodes for Christmas. <laughs> it's such a weird theme to have for Christmas. But uh, this one, it, in time, it sort of takes place right after Christmas. But I I get obsessed with these people that make like the FBI's most wanted list um, or America's most wanted or unsolved mysteries or are still on the FBI website when it's been years And this particular case, uh, he's in all of those. Like this guy was someone that um, the stories, it feels sort of short. Um, I like uh, still talking about those cases because I think this one had a huge impact. Like over the last few years, seven, eight years maybe, I've read multiple accounts where they talk to some of the family members related to this situation and um it was it was sort of an odd uh thing that happened in terms of um how unsolved mysteries laid it out for us but up in ash county north carolina are you familiar with that area in the mountains by the way i am i was not as familiar but it there's a place up there, uh, and I guess technically it's the Ash County, Wilkes County line. It's, it's really beautiful. The, the area is called uh, West Jefferson, and I've been up to the hiking trail there before. Mm-hmm. So, and this has been written about uh, several times over the years. I think the most recent thing that I had uh, there was this blog called Wilkesboro and Beyond. And in November of 2014, I, I copied and pasted some pieces about that area. And I, I want to say I did that because of this case. There were a couple of things that happened there that were interesting. So this is what the blog post comes. This comes from a guy named Jonathan uh, Widener. And he writes about sort of like local touristy things up there. Um, He says, as you travel North Carolina 16 out of Wilkesboro, past Miller's Creek and Wilbur, then climb the mountain, you deal with many curves. 
And he says, shoot, curves are a part of just about any road traveled here in the foothills and the mountains. But once you get to the top, past the three passing zones, right at the Ash County line, one curve stands out. And it stands out because it has a name. How it got its name, I haven't yet determined. I don't know if it has anything to do with the former beer joint and trading post that sits there or not. Not that it looks like a bar from how it looks now. For the most part, it has to do with how it's situated along the road. No woods nestle or obscure the view, and in the morning, it provides a spectacular scene. But the curve that I speak of is called the Jumpin' Off Rock, also called the Jumpin' Off Place. When I first received an invitation to contribute here, one of the first things I thought about was this place, a place so special it gets a name and an overlook on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And so the word is jumping off. Like, so it's like jumping without a G, J-U-M-P-I-N-O-F-F, uh, rock. Um, and they, they have nicknamed it the jumping off place. And it actually has the, like a, one of those brown signs. With uh, the name on it? Yeah, like the... The you know it, it marks it and it marks like how far you are from the rock, and I thought that was interesting. It is interesting. Um, I hope they have a rail up. Well, okay, so this area up here, so th- no, th- so there there's a missing persons case tied to here, um, and in the Wilkes Journal Patriot in 2013, I had saved an article like a, one of those clippings. It's not mm-hmm. a very interesting missing persons case, but then, you know, is it? So there was a girl named Holly Fisher and she was 39 years old and she had been reported missing May 27th, 2013 out of Charlotte, North Carolina, down in Mecklenburg County. And when she went missing, uh, they said that she was in her 2004 Infinity FX35 and multiple sheriff's agencies put out an alert to be on the lookout for her. On Sunday, I got to look at my calendar really quick to figure out this part. So June 2013 calendar. Okay, Sunday, June the 2nd, a person at Jumping Off Rock looked over the side uh, off of what's known as North Carolina 16 North, and they saw a car that was wedged between some trees having gone over the curve. Wilkes Sheriff Chris Hsu said that the vehicle identification number he pulled from the car uh, said that it matched to Holly Fisher. So he also said that because it was near the car and there was other circumstantial evidence, investigators believe uh, when they find this, they find a body basically, um, around 10 a.m. on Monday, because it took them a while to get down to this area, they find business cards scattered that have her name on it. So they believe that it is Holly Fisher. Um, He said there was no uh, evidence of foul play involved with the death and that there was no evidence indicating that she lost control of the car before it plummeted down the mountainside. It stopped about a 1,000 feet off of the road. And then later on Monday the 3rd, the officials in the area pulled in – a company that could cut down trees so that the car could be pushed down the slope to where a logging skidder could grab the car and put it on a a rollback wrecker. 
But the it was believed that the car went off the east side of North Carolina 16 North. Um, there was a 30-foot-wide opening between the end of the metal guardrail and a light pole that was about 150 feet away from this area there that surrounds the former Moonshine Inn Tavern. So it was just a couple hundred feet south of the jumping-off place cliffs. The car basically had to have gone straight off the road instead of following the curve around to the left. But the highway patrol did an investigation and they found that there was no evidence that the brakes had been applied at all. So this woman was, uh, believed to have gone on May 27th over to Knoxville, Tennessee to see her parents. And she was returning to Charlotte when they didn't hear from her. They reported her missing to the Knox County Sheriff's department, Tennessee, Basically, she didn't call and say, hey, guys, I'm home. They get they do an investigation into this. And the local paper up there, the Journal Patriot, reports about it for a couple of weeks. Uh, there's quotes in there from the Ash uh, Sheriff's Department uh, that said that they talked to Holly Fisher's father, a guy named Ted Fisher. And they said that she was in the process of getting a divorce, but that the Fishers did not believe that their daughter was suicidal. And she had been a manager in Warrensville of the Chemicon plant up there. And they told the sheriff's department that his daughter was upset and emotional about the divorce when she left her parents' house. The fire chief up there, a guy named Rick Jennings, he said a man on a motorcycle had stopped by the Wilbur Fire Station uh, Sunday evening on the 2nd. And he told firefighters that he had found a place where he believed a car had gone off NC-16, but it was dark. And the man said that he was helping the Fisher family search that day. So at that point, a couple of firefighters from that station and Wilbar, they went over to rappel down and see if they could see the car and they found it. At that point in time, multiple agencies came to the scene, but they all had to rappel down these steep side of things to look at the car. And they ended up, uh, looking all over and finally the sheriff did uh, locate a, her cell phone. So he then went looking for a signal from her cell phone and she, the cell phone stopped uh, putting out that signal on Thursday night, which would have been Thursday night would have been uh, in, in May shortly after she had left. So basically this is on a Sunday which is like, it's, I know it can be hard for people to imagine. She had left the previous Monday. So Monday, May 27th, Tuesday, May 28th, Wednesday, May 29th, and then Thursday, May 30th, the phone is pinging. And then it just stops. So they follow the cell phone path back and she, you know, she apparently had come back to the, the, Wilkesboro area and supposedly her parents owned a condominium nearby. And so you can see where she's there and then they could just kind of follow her cell phone ping back up the mountain to where they found a car. Anyways, she's eventually identified. Um, you know, when something like that happens, they have to wait a while to identify a person. They can't just tell the family, Hey, we found your, your dead missing loved one. But that's not why we're talking about the jumping off point. I was just sort of, uh, going through a little history well, I, there. I feel like that could have, well, it probably didn't contribute to the name, but like that's sort of the point, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of the the point of um, what's happening there. Somebody or a lot of people looked at it and said this would be the place to jump off at. Yeah, or a place like once there was a road there, they just sort of recognized the danger related to it. I don't know how long ago it, it got its name. Um, I thought it was interesting that the jumping off rock had a name. Um, go ahead. Well, uh, and so from what you've looked at, there's not like a ton of suicides or anything there. I didn't I mean, find I didn't find a history like that. I did okay. find where there'd been some interesting accidents and stuff there. Holly Fisher's case was interesting because of how that went. But that's that's not even the case while we're here. Um right. we're, we're actually talking about a case from January 15th of 1984. And a young lady in this area named Sherry Hart who later became Sherry Lyle she had a date that evening, and uh, this is January 15th, 1984. She, it's sort of after the holidays. Um, she also had a very young daughter at the time who would have been around seven or eight years old. So Sherry was divorced from her husband at the time, and she was starting to date again. The date, however, stood her up. Had you ever heard about her before, by the way? Only just looking into this case. Okay. So where I remember this case from is it pops up on an old Unsolved Mysteries. And there's... I would have to say that I've seen that, but I just don't recall it. Because I've seen every Unsolved Mysteries there is. Multiple (laughs) times. So once Sherry gets stood up for her date, she goes out with her friends Richard and Jeff. So Richard's full name was Richard Bear, and Jeff's name was Jeffrey Burgess. Now, these two guys were a little bit younger. So Sherry Hart, at the time that this happens, oh, here comes some math. Hold on. She She would have been 24 years old. But her friends that she's meeting were both 19. So apparently Richard started to hit on Sherry. And when he did that, she basically said, not interested. Um, And he's an interesting looking guy. Have you seen pictures of him from? I have, yeah. I I remember his most wanted poster. Um, he, He had a very interesting look. Now, Richard had not really been around long enough to develop much of a criminal record, but he does have one. And I do want to point that out here because it comes into play a little bit later on. But what Richard has a a record for is not super serious. You have to remember when you're 19, a lot of times if you've done anything underage, you get away with quite a bit of things. I consider it to be like a a low-level criminal record. Does that that differentiate? Does that make sense? Would you say it's nonviolent? Yeah, it's nonviolent. So he has a larceny in 1982, um, but it is a, a larceny over $200, and it looks like a plea deal. And well, then, anytime there's no violence involved, um, I consider it to be less of a criminal record than you know a violent offender. And you know, violence can be anything. It can be basically any anytime you put your hands on somebody else, right? 
Yeah. Um, that's where uh, I start to take note of it. Even if it's just like, you know, a an assault charge or something like that, something that's not like super um, bad, so to speak, but it, it gives you an idea they have the ability to put their hands on somebody, right? Yeah, this guy had multiple breaking and entering and larceny charges. He had several larcenies over $200. There were two things about it that I found interesting. So the offenses all take place in December of 1982. So if you think about like what we're talking about in terms of 84, that's pretty close proximity. Um, It's been about a year. We're in January of 84. December of 82 is only really a year and change earlier. What was really interesting about it was Ash County arrest him first and then Wilkes County arrest him on almost the same charges in December of 1982. By January of 1983, it's all wrapped up. And that shocked me a little bit. Um, so it's Christmas time and the courts typically close for a week or two around Christmas time. There are still some things that have to happen and move, but it's typically not like trials and things like that. These were definitely, they had some felonies in there, but they were helping him avoid having a record. So they pleaded out to misdemeanors. There's some restitution involved. The first one in Ash County actually wraps up on December the 16th. So that's less than 14 days after he does the breaking and enterings and larcenings in Ash County. He basically just pleads guilty. Right. And then by January 12th, um, which is not that much later, all of it is wrapped up. The only other thing he has in his criminal record that's um, a little interesting is in July of 1983, he got a very generic violation of drug law sentence, but it's a, it's a misdemeanor. So what's crazy about it is that July of 1983 charge and conviction in July of one year comes from December of 1981. So I don't know exactly what. what, So so he's charged with these other things, and it all wraps up in like literally less breaking and entering and larceny charges, two hundred dollars, and okay, yeah, and then he gets a like all other drug charge. Yeah, it just says that he's it's a violation of the the drug law, and it doesn't give me any more detail than that. When I go to look at it, it looks like there's really only a a single hearing, and he essentially is either found guilty or pleads guilty. And Why would he be getting charged with it at that point, though? I don't know. Because like, when I first looked at it on his criminal record, I thought he had uh, failed a probation drug test in July okay. after being put on in January, but it wasn't. Oh, I see, because it was earlier. Yeah, because it's, it's years earlier. It's literally uh, almost two years earlier. All of this goes down, and Richard Bear. Um, is he's basically put back on probation in July of 1983. So the night that he starts to advance on Sherry, he doesn't take it well when she starts to leave. And he ends up following her out. He gets mad at her, and he hit her in the back of her head with a pistol. That's according to Jeff Burgess, who is with Richard and Sherry that night. So right before they get into a 1977 Ford Mustang, Richard Bear begins trying to take control of what's happening in the car by telling Burgess to head them out 
uh, to an area on North Carolina Highway 16 that is near the Moonshine Tavern. Um, it's about a quarter mile from the Blue Ridge Parkway in this area. It's a like there's a time of year where this area is really, really busy and has a lot of people. Even in the 80s, it would have been where people go up to watch sort of the leaves change. Yeah, because they're very colorful. Yeah, and you can see like for miles, it's got a pretty high elevation along the road, and you can just see it's very beautiful. Um, and people do spend a lot of time uh, in Western North Carolina at the holidays. When they get to this area that's about a quarter mile off of the Blue Ridge Parkway, Richard gets out of the Mustang and he follows Sherry Hart, who turns, and Burgess can now see that where Richard hit her, she's bleeding. She's trying to get away from them, and Richard is trying to stop her, and he comes back to the car, and he tells Jeff that he needs him to drive down and turn around at uh, a parking lot and to come back up and get him. Burgess told law enforcement in an, or Jeff told law enforcement in a later interview that Richard had threatened to kill Jeff and his family if Jeff ever told anyone what had just happened. What a wimp. Yeah, so he he threatens to kill his friend. These are 19-year-old kids. Keep that in mind. Not that I there's any excuse. That, but I mean, if you're the company you keep, like I would hope you would be able to at least, I mean, if you don't want to uh, have a confrontation with your friend, at least for the sake of someone else's life, I mean, come on. Yeah. So, as you probably figured out, like, nothing that we're doing here is really indicative of being a fugitive. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the part where it gets weird. Well, part of it, but it is, it is relevant, though, because... The situation of the case, it leads us to, we have to believe what Jeffrey Burgess said, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Where does it get weird? It gets weird because Sherry Hart goes missing that night. And she's not found for a year. On December 10th of 1984, her body is found at the bottom of the cliff at the jumping off place. Uh, she had just been a missing person up until that point. Uh, her family had wondered what had happened to her, and her, you know, her daughter had been pretty much left without a mom. Some weird stuff happens that evening uh, with Jeff and Richard. Now, according to a 2015 article in the Journal Patriot, which is, a, it's like a local paper up in Wilkes County. Jewel Hubbard writes this article. The 30th anniversary of an important chapter in one of Northwestern North Carolina's most highly publicized murders is this month. Richard Lynn Bear is charged with murdering Sherry Elaine Lyle Hart by pushing her off of the jumping off place cliffs along North Carolina 16 in Wilkes County, near the Ash County line. He was discovered missing from the Wilkes County Jail on the morning of July 17th of 1985. In a Journal Patriot story about the escape the day after it occurred, 
Captain Joe Owings of the Wilkes County Sheriff's Office said that Richard was discovered missing when a head count was done for breakfast at 5 a.m. on July 17, 1985. Owings said he believed that Richard hid behind a door during visiting hours from 6 to 8 p.m. on July the 16th, and then he just walked out of the jail because the jailer on duty didn't realize he wasn't back in his cell. Jail gates leading to the cells were left open during visiting hours, and only one jailer was on duty per shift. However, the jailer on duty until midnight July 16th told the newspaper that he let Bear out of the cell to visit his girlfriend at 8 p.m. on July 16th. He put him back in the cell at 8.30 p.m. when he let another inmate out to make a phone call. Talk over the years, including among law enforcement officers, has, has been about another jailer who somehow helped Richard escape because he was reportedly dating Richard's sister. Kyle Gentry, who was the Wilkes County Sheriff at the time, fired two jailers as a result of the escape. Everything about Sherry Hart's murder made it an Ash County case, except for the fact that it occurred in Wilkes County, less than a mile from the Ash County line. Richard had a Jefferson address, Sherry and her daughter had moved in with her parents in Beaver Creek, which is in Ash County, and they were staying there after she got a divorce. She would have been 24 years old when she died. So the sequence of events, according to this paper, uh, immediately preceding her death, uh, begins on the night of January 15, 1984, when she meets up with Richard and Jeff in the parking lot of a grocery store in West Jefferson. And they all agree that they're going to go ride around in Richard's white Ford Mustang. According to court records, Richard became angry that night when Mrs. Hart turned down his advances and he struck her on the head with a pistol and it caused her to bleed. So I'm sort of repeating some of this, but I'm just giving you a different perspective on it. According to those papers, Richard exited the car with Hart, told Burgess to drive down the road and then pushed Mrs. Hart off of the cliffs at the jumping off place. So Richard then left with Jeff, and he returned. Well, when Jeff returned a few minutes later, when Sherry doesn't come home that night, her parents file a missing persons report, and then her father finds her car down in West Jefferson a few days later. Ash County Sheriff's deputies in December of 1984 are looking for a safe that was taken in a breaking and entering, and is rumored to have been thrown off of the cliff at the jumping off point when they discover Mrs. Hart's remains. So it's these cops out there looking for something else and they find her body using her medical records and old x-rays. The state medical examiner identified her remains. There's a $5,000 reward in the case from the time her body's found in December of 1984. And there's a tip that comes into the governor's office in March of 1985. This leads to Richard and Jeff being arrested so Jeff gets taken to the Ash County Jail and Richard gets taken to the Wilkes County Jail. Jeff was expected to testify against Richard, but Jeff was never going to be tried in the Hart case. He ended up serving a four-year sentence for violating his probation at the time, which, you know, like, Jeff was young. Like, he was a little younger than... I don't, I don't have a problem with uh, what happened there. I feel like, um, what was he on probation for? You uh, yeah, so Jeff was on probation for, 
which one is going to be that time is a, he has a long record. Um, <laughs> sorry. He had in 1986, 1987, he had multiple misdemeanor breaking and entering and larceny charges. And at the time, what? Anything violent? No, nothing at all. But at the time of this is all going on, what he had was a, a possession of drug paraphernalia. Okay. Um, it, it's just interesting because, um, so he, he gave the story, right? So you've got two different counties that are right there beside of each other. And if I'm not mistaken, the population on these counties, I mean, it's tiny, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's not it's, a ton of people that live out here between Wilkes and Ash County. This is uh, western North Carolina out in the mountains, right? Yes, it is. It's the population and, of the whole county is probably 60,000 people today. Great. It's so, small. Yeah, it's a little. And Ash County is not that. Uh, that's Wilkes. Ash County is probably 20,000 people. Right. Okay. And so you've got... Um, I don't know which one went where, but you've got them splitting these guys up. This is uh, quite a ways after she was a missing person, and then her body has now been found. A tip comes in, and they've got uh, these two guys, and they're trying to talk with them about what happened. And so Jeff Burgess gives this account, right? Yeah. He tells his story. But um, from what I could tell, like, Bear didn't say anything, did he? And so to me, it's really interesting, uh, that dynamic, because I always wonder about that kind of thing. As far as like the dominant personality thing? Well, I wonder about a situation where you've got, so you can have two people that don't, neither one of them say anything, right? You can have two people that blame one another, right? And it's very seldom that you have a situation where somebody talks and the other person doesn't say anything at all. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. They don't even say, like, I didn't do it, it was him, right? Correct. And that always makes it just, I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. It just starts my brain, uh, the, the wheels in my brain turning, right? Because it's like, well, is he a loyal friend, right? That's even though he's being thrown under the bus, he's not going to throw his friend under the bus. Is it, you know, what's happening there? But, you know, for all the purposes of this story, we we have to go along with um, Jeff Burgess's account of what he said happened. I find it really, really strange that he would have any that anybody would have done what he claims happened here, right? Seen a girl with a bloody uh, injury from the pistol because he he hit her with a pistol, right? That's what the story is. And Richard hit her, not Jeff. Yeah, Richard hit her with a pistol. They drive out to the um, the jumping off place or close by it. And they get out of the car and he tells them to go down and turn around in the parking lot and come back and get him. And I mean, who, who does that? Uh, someone who's about to kill someone. Right. But, but who drives off? I mean, like, you know what Are, I'm saying? Do you think he stayed? I, I don't, I don't think, I don't know what happened, but I don't think that that's what happened. <laughs> do you? Well, well, 
So because if nothing else, you're like, buddy, get in the car. Let's go. <laughs> right. I'm not going to leave you here to kill her. Right. Right. And well, <laughs> but, and so there's nothing that comes back against him and, and bear just doesn't say anything. It appears. I, I didn't really mean to get us off course. I no, just you're fine. element of the story. Very interesting. As far as Jeff Burgess goes, what happens to him is he gets a four-year sentence for some other stuff that he normally wouldn't get four years for. And the he's belief not charged with this case, right? He's not charged at all here, but he does four years for these breaking and entering misdemeanors that they sort of pile them all up. Like they hit him with a sentence and it looks like 1990, the way that they clear it all up is in 1990, they look back. Okay. 1990, he gets out from having done multiple years, 87, 88, 89, and then into 90 for these misdemeanor breaking and enterings. Now, the reason I point that out is because it, he gets this really bizarre stacked sentence that we really didn't see in the 80s of all misdemeanors. He's not even a felon at this point, but somehow does basically four years in jail. Does that make sense to you? Like what I'm saying makes sense to you? Yeah, it does. They, they were basically uh, trying to punish him for something. Yeah. So what they did was they gave him an impossible sentence and they sent him away on probation. And then they violated his probation every chance they got. Right. So by the time he really, really, really gets out of jail, it's September of 1990. What do you think happens when he gets out of jail in September of 1990? Um, that he probably breaks into somewhere. Oh, no. He gets sent back to jail. So then they, then they, um, what they do is basically, so he leaves jail and he drives away. Like they pull him over and they charge him with his driver's license being revoked and, and, and for not having a valid registration. And then it just, they continue to do that to him. So for the next several years, he has 15 or 20 driver's license revoked charges, which what is weird about having your driver's license revoked is it prevents you from getting a driver's license for a certain period of time, depending on, but that's it. That's all he has. He finally becomes a felon um, in uh, late 1997. And that the only reason he actually becomes a felon is it's really weird. They hit him with habitual misdemeanor larceny and habitual misdemeanor breaking and entering. So he becomes a felon because of the He's habitual. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause he would have been offending like right before that. Right. Yep. So they keep putting him in jail, keep putting him in jail, keep putting him in jail. And he finally gets out in the year 2000 and then he becomes a real felon with uh, different controlled substances charges from his past. And they, they keep putting him in jail. Uh, the last time that he gets out of jail, he's on a very long probation starting in 2003. He gets out of jail in 2003. And then he's on um, a probation that by that point had sort of racked up to be almost 10 years worth of probation. Um, he would have gotten off of probation in 2013, except he died in 2012. So he was um, 20 years old in 1984. Yeah, he was born in, he would have been born in 1964. Um, he would have actually been 19. Yeah, but when he died? 
Oh, uh, no. Uh, when he died, 64 is 36 plus 12, 48 years old. Okay. That's what's crazy about all of this. Okay, so but that's, we haven't even gotten that, to like, that's Burgess. Right. Okay. And I so, kind of got a self track, but I thought yeah. that was very interesting. So Dane Maston is the former sheriff of uh, Wilkes County. He was a deputy when Richard escapes, which Richard escapes way before Jeff dies. This is 1985 we're talking about. So it's summer of 1985 when Richard escapes from the Wilkes he County. He escaped jail. before he was even convicted of the crime. Right. Which is why we have to go off of what Jeff Burgess said. because There's uh, no Bear, records. Right. Bear didn't give a statement. And there was the trial didn't end up happening. Yeah. So over the next couple of years um, from the, the 1985 escape, uh, basically it starts to pile up like these different anonymous tips. And I got to tell you, Richard Bear at 18, 19, 20, 21 does not strike me as a genius. Well, you have to wonder though, because uh, to get to. He's driving to around have- in his Mustang <laughs> and he hits somebody in the head with a pistol. And the best thing he can think of to do with her is to push her off of a cliff. Did you ever see um, any sort of corroboration as far as that goes? No, I actually have. I got a whole thing where I wonder if she was hit by a car or something. Oh, really? Yeah, like if he bumped her. It seemed like. Or um, somebody else hit her. Somebody would have spoke up about that, maybe. I don't don't know. That's what I know what you did last summer was built on. Those kids were like too scared to admit they'd hit a person. I understand. These were kids. I mean, well, sort of. They were young, right? Yeah. But um, so, you know, my question would be like, okay, you, you're you this guy who's hit a girl because she didn't like your advances. I, I assume he was probably drinking. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. No, no, but you're right. He's definitely I drinking. I can't figure out why... If he hit her with a pistol, I mean, did he just not have any ammunition? Was he just like that much of a jerk that he felt like, you know, because if he pushed her, she suffered, right? Like she didn't, uh, well, she may have died instantly. I don't know. They said she was 2,000 feet down. No, no, 200 feet down. 200 feet down. Oh, okay. But it's still, that's 200 feet fall and 2,000 feet fall are not that different when you're a human body. So You're she just suffered, as dead. right? I mean, if she was alive when she hit the ground, she would have suffered for a few minutes, yeah. Well, that's what I'm asking. Like, was she al- I don't know. I don't know about um, – I'll have to ask my child. He'll be able to tell me. <laughs> She's smarter than I am about stuff like that. And so, you know, it seems to – so, okay, he, he doesn't shoot her because there would have been evidence she had been shot even 11 months later, right? I mean, there's a bullet hole, right? And I don't see anything about that anywhere. Do you? No, she she is like the story goes. She was pushed off the cliff, right? And so she's found um, at you know the bottom of the cliff. I don't yeah. know what that's called, but uh, the ravine, I guess, is that what it's called? Um, anyway, yeah. they the um, they find her, and so why? So, and I'm trying to get behind this the thought process here of 
Bert, uh, Bear, Richard Bear, why did he push her off a cliff? That's a weird way to kill somebody. I don't know the answer to that question. So he was just an asshole. Well, okay, so I just want to point something out here. And, like, this is totally me playing devil's advocate. And, like, keep in mind there's a living victim to all of this. So here's the whole idea for me that's a problem. Jeff's there. He testifies that Richard told him to drive away and that he threatened his family. That's what he says either – Either in his, if there's either some kind of testimony in a probable cause situation because there are charges filed against Richard Bear. Right. So, so he gave a statement that was based, and that was the basis for those charges. Right, but my point is, Richard carrying a handgun. I believe that Richard hitting on Sherry and then hitting her with the pistol. I believe that we can't really have a witness to forcing her at gunpoint to the edge of the cliff and then pushing her off. That's what Unsolved Mysteries in America's Most Wanted talks about. We don't have a witness to that. We don't know how she gets to the edge of that cliff. We don't know how she goes off of that cliff. So I'm not, I'm not taking up for bear when I say this. I'm saying we don't have that information. And I believe if Burgess had said, well, I lied about driving away, I was actually standing there, that would be a different thing. Right? I don't know. I I do think in some ways that if Bear really hadn't done any of that stuff, he would have said, look, I didn't do this stuff, right? And that's not recorded anywhere. Now, you're right. It is circumstantial evidence. And um, the circumstances being that they were with her, um, and then one of them was with her. She was bleeding, and the other one says he left. And then he came back and got the other, uh, the guy, right? But the girl was gone. And so all that's, a, you know, you have to infer from the circumstances what happened to make her end up at the bottom of the cliff, right? Right. Um, but, you know, when it goes to trial, a jury gets to do that. Right. That's they use the inf- information that's provided to them and they decide whether the circumstances are enough for them to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he killed her. Right. That is what the jury would do. Yes. Right. OK. So that's where like, you know, you hear all the time that like circumstantial cases aren't aren't real cases or whatever. Or, or a lot of prosecutors won't go and take a circumstantial case to a jury. Right. But. Um, this is a perfect example of where, you know, given the right information, a jury will know under the circumstances, more than likely, he was responsible for pushing her off. Or they'll decide he wasn't responsible for it, right? Depending on what they're told. Correct. Now, where this is located, it's not like there's a lot of other cars driving by. It's not like there's going to be a lot of people there, right? I guess I don't feel like she committed suicide. I feel like that's kind of ridiculous. I feel like some sort of accident they would have spoken up about, um, like way beforehand. Uh, drunk people do weird things, though, right? Yeah, and yeah. Drunk people do stupid things. Like, and and that's that's what I 
deduced down to him like pushing her off the cliff was that he was just being stupid because that's a weird way to kill somebody. And like, cause he, he doesn't even like, what is he even thinking? Right. That's not actually killing somebody. That's actually just pushing them for them to die. Right. So he could have been a coward, right. In some ways he, so he was really mad and a coward, but it seems like uh, they had to, he had to have had that in his mind for them to have ended up where they ended up. Well, I mean, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, he is considered to be responsible for pushing her off of a cliff. Why not shoot her? Why not strangle her? I have no idea. Well, because he was a coward. That probably ties into why he doesn't actually, have much of a violent I criminal record. I shouldn't say he's a coward. I don't want I don't feel like people that kill people are brave. Okay. But like he couldn't bring himself to kill her, but he was so enraged. He wanted her to die. Does that make better sense? And, and honestly, when he wasn't like drinking, I think he was so enraged because he didn't want her to talk. I think he was so enraged because she rejected him. Right. That's what I mean. He didn't want, like, so. And then he made a mistake by hitting her. And then he he felt like he, I don't know if she goaded him on or something, right? Whatever, Whatever happened there that she gets hit by this younger guy, which, and it does make a difference, in my opinion, that she has a couple years on these guys, because that makes it worse that you've now, hit your friend and person that you, you know, sort of regularly talk to. Um, We don't know that for certain, but they did know each other. We know that they've at least talked enough that she met them in a grocery store parking lot to go to a bar. Well, my understanding of that was, and and I could be wrong, once her, her date didn't show up, which shame on that guy, right? This would have been a completely different, I mean, it wouldn't even be a story if he'd shown up. Um, and she was a really pretty girl, so whatever. Like, she ran into them. And she's like, hey, how's it going, guys? Because I think they had gone to school together. Right. And so she would have just known of them. But like we said earlier, like, this area is very, very small, right? Yeah, it is. And so it's not hard for people that are even five years apart to know one another, right? Yeah. As far as like, oh, we went to school back, you know, I was graduating and they were freshmen or whatever, right? And so I think she was just, you know, bummed because she got stood up and, you know, there's a couple of guys who want to have a good time and she trusts them to a certain extent because she does know who they are and there's two of them there and what are the chances that both of them can be assholes? Right? Uh I, I agree. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't buy, it sounds like the police didn't buy it either. And that's why they just like relentlessly pick at this, uh, at Jeff Burgess, like his entire life, they just pick at him. Right. That's what yeah. it seems like to me. But I do wonder though, I feel like, uh, Richard Baird's approach is very interesting, uh, to like not, he didn't tell on his friend. He didn't make any sort of denial. Because if he denies it, that makes his friend a liar, right? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, this is also a good place to point out that in this case, finding her body 11 months later, Jeff Burgess doesn't talk. They don't have any information about what happened to her. Right. Like, they could literally say, we saw her and that was it. And they, I mean, if there is no information... They can't do anything. 
But um, I want, so they, you know, they talk him into giving his side of the story. He does. And um, Richard is charged. Yep. This case doesn't have an ending. They follow leads for a number of years. Here's some of the things they hear about Richard Bear. Uh, and this goes back to both the Journal Patriot and to America's Most Wanted. Uh, Bear has green eyes and reportedly has potentially dressed as a female to conceal his identity. I don't know where you get that information for. Dane Mastin, the deputy we talked about, he told the Journal Patriot that Mastin said uh, he he traveled as far as Maryland chasing down tips concerning his whereabouts. It says that Bear may have colored its hair dark brown um, his dark brown hair, red or blonde. He may possibly have a tattoo of a panther on his forearm. I don't know where stuff like that comes from. And Wilk Sheriff Chris Shue, uh, who was a he was a deputy back when Bear had escaped, he said he's surprised Bear hasn't been caught because all it should take is for him to get arrested for some unrelated offense and then have his fingerprints checked. Now, prosecutors asked for the murder charge against Bear to be dismissed with leave in 1994, which meant they reserved the right to recharge him if he's ever located. Uh, District Attorney Tom Horner said that officials investigating information, uh, they investigated information received in 2002 about a man living in Caldwell County, which is the southwest corner of Wilkes County. Like if you leave the county, you're, you would be in Caldwell County. But um, ultimately, it was determined that it wasn't uh, Richard Bear. And they, you know, law enforcement says they have received reports of. Uh, Richard Bear being seen in this area as recently that I can find as 2021, which is fascinating to me that he's alleged right. to have been right there. That would mean he's living in plain sight. Um, they, I, I had read that in 1993, uh, authorities had nearly captured him in Delaware uh, when he was staying with a relative. Uh, and the FBI went there to get him based on a tip and they ended up, uh, he left beforehand and they couldn't, they didn't get him. Right. Is that like confirmed though? I don't know. I, I just saw it. Like I said, um, in a summary of what had happened, but, uh, to me, uh, it, the reason that they, the prosecutors ended up asking for the murder charges to be, um, dismissed with leave so they could refile them. It seemed to be because of the struggle there where they had, they were so close to getting him yeah, and then not getting him because he had been staying with a relative and then not getting him. And then, cause it's, it all happens like in a, in a timely manner, but it, it is possible that that's not true. I don't know. I, you know, the FBI is not going to put out a lot of information about the fugitive they didn't get. Right. <laughs> I mean, right, right. You're right. <laughs> um, so, you know, like I said, that it could be incorrect, but it's out there. So uh, it, it's a possibility as much as anything else. But he had been um, he had ties all over the place, basically. And I don't know how strong you had to be tied to him to be considered, but they considered him to possibly have gone to South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Florida. I mean, pretty much anywhere in the on the southeast side of the United States, right? Do you think a guy like that can go that long without being arrested again? Well, here's the thing uh, I was going to point out, and it's it's kind of bad, but it's also kind of not bad. 
I feel like it could be an objective point of view, but it's probably subjective because of me. But uh, I feel like a lot of the crimes that uh, he was uh, arrested for in, you know, Wilkes County, North Carolina or Ash County, North Carolina. um, I feel like it's a whole different scenario. I'm not saying he didn't commit the crimes. I'm just saying, like, I think once you get sort of out of the woods (laughs) into like civilized society where there's like more of an opportunity to get a job maybe, or like there's other avenues to go down. And then you don't have like this helicopter police force that's constantly uh, nagging you. Cause in small towns like that in the eighties and probably everywhere, but in North Carolina, um, I would say that as soon as you're on the radar, you're going to be on the radar for the rest of your life, right? Oh, Even yeah. with just these small, like, burglaries and larcenies, right? Yeah. And so he would have been constantly hounded. Well, if he gets into a bigger area, he's going to disappear, so to speak, right? Um, he's not That's going true. to be as prominent uh, as, you know, he was in, you know, Podunk, North Carolina, do I think he could go without being arrested? Well, yeah, I do. I I feel like um, a lot of his arrests were circumstantial, like based on his circumstances. You know, he. I kind of feel sorry for them because they were young, right? Um, I don't feel sorry for them, the one guy driving off and leaving his friend to push this girl off a cliff, right? That's ridiculous. The, the whole situation is ridiculous. But with some more opportunities and like a broader perspective, this wouldn't have happened to begin with, right? Yeah. I mean, if the internet had existed, <laughs> they could have gotten online and found something else to do, right? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and we've talked about that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but this guy is no um, serial killer. Definitely not. We That hasn't even come up. But I, I don't even feel like he's an, a legitimate criminal, right? Uh, I don't know what his uh, his motivation for those robberies was, but I'm going to take a wild guess and say that it was boredom. Well. <sighs> Do you think he's still alive? No. No, I think uh, he's probably been dead since the 90s. Yeah, I, um, I feel like that, could it like I could be completely wrong and that could be the reason why he didn't get rearrested <laughs> because he's just been dead all this time. Um, of course, like who was he when he died, right? Well, I so I read this one account and it's an old newspaper article where um uh Gene Goss uh and I, I don't know if this I don't know how accurate this information is, so I'm just saying what I read uh, was Gene Goss conducted an interview with him, just one interview. Um, He was, so Gene was the sheriff of Ash County, which was the smaller County of the two, if that makes sense. Like Wilkes has like some larger areas and Ash County does not as much. And it's probably land mass is probably similar, but like the number of people in Ash County is pretty small. So there's a quote that somebody had put up, and I don't even know where I read it. I wrote the quote down a long time ago, but it said that um, Richard wanted to talk to Gene Goss. And so 
this is back in like March of 1985, like when they were arrested. And uh, the sheriff sort of recounted um, him saying that uh, he wanted to know what he was charged with. And uh, Goss told him that he was charged with murder. And Richard was like, well, that's crazy. Um, And as they were talking, he says, I have no idea who Sherry Hart is. And that was it. There is an account where uh, someone else in the the courts said that Bear's excuse was his brother Bobby and Sherry knew each other. And I did look that up and he did have a a brother named Bobby. Um, They were closer in age than Sherry and Richard. Well, in that case, again, uh, not sure why he didn't speak up. Might not have known the entirety of what he was looking at, like from his perspective at that time and place, right? Yeah. Because you're right. He's going, hey, what am I charged with, right? And the sheriff is going, murder of, you know, Sherry Hart. And he's like, well, who's that? Which it could be, you know, just trying to deny what he's done, but it also could be that Jeffrey Burgess like brought him into this. Well, the the other (laughs) weird, the other weird thing was bear had a kid. And that's the part that made me wonder, like, how do you bail on a child? (laughs) Not, I mean, if you can push somebody off a cliff, you can bail on a child. Well, anyways, there's a couple of different uh, stories that you can read about this story. Do you think he'll ever be caught if he's still alive? I think if he gets away this long, it'll be unlikely. uh, If he's got a child um, and uh, it it significantly increases the chances he'll be caught. Yeah, well, uh, one thing I did find, this is the last thing I have about this case. Um, So Richard Bear did not own a Mustang. So whose car was it? Bobby Bear's. Where's Bobby Bear at? I don't know. I, you know, I dug a little bit, but I mean, I didn't find... I do think that, okay, so what caught my attention immediately was the situation where you've got two guys brought in like pretty, uh, pretty far after the fact, like a year later, um, a year from where she went missing, right? A year from when it supposedly happened, because according to the story we're giving, she was, uh, you know, whatever happened to her happened like immediately, right? Yeah. Um, And so I find it really interesting anytime that happens, um, that you have uh, two culprits come in, uh, yeah. friends, right? And do you remember last year uh, during the Christmas episodes, <laughs> the the three the three factor where you had three people, and so they'd bring one in, and they're like, "This guy couldn't have done it by himself. Who's your buddy?" Right? <laughs> and right. Then, and then and then they are like, "Well, I don't think these two." quite get there and then they bring in the third person right um and it's all concocted and it's pretty obvious and so it seems to me like um uh that's the story of three well the story of two guys um 
Now, somebody called in a tip, right? And I assume the tip led them to both of them, but that's an assumption. I don't know. Um, and so they've got these two guys there, and there can be loyalty among friends if they both aren't saying anything, right? I'm not going to say anything. You're not going to say anything. But once the tables turn, typically you're going to be like, that is not true, right? <laughs> Even if you don't like give your friend up, you're at least going to say, wait a second, you know? Um, and so because this never made it all the way to trial, I, I wonder like, is this guy really responsible for this? Well, <laughs> it's funny that you say that. Can I tell you a story or no? Like, are you going somewhere with this, or can I tell you like some facts that might change your mind? I, yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm uh, out here. Whatever you have. I hunted everywhere for like court records about this case because I thought I might come across something. And we just talked about the fact that like Ash County, North Carolina is pretty small. Yes. So I'm going to tell you a story from an appellate document I found. And then I'm going to let you do whatever you want with it. Okay. Yeah. And keep in mind, I'm not saying any of this is related or has anything to do with anything. I am just going to read this piece of an appellate document. Bobby Jean bear and Yolanda Cooley had a daughter named winter bear in February of 1983. In August of 1983, they lived in Ash County, North Carolina. Yolanda signed papers making Bobby Bear the legal guardian of Winter Bear. Yolanda then moved to Kentucky to work for Job Corps. Bobby Bear stayed in contact with Yolanda, trying to convince her to move back to North Carolina and even propose marriage. But Yolanda declined. In October of 1983, Yolanda traveled to Ash County with her mother, Letitia Cooley, and her mother's boyfriend, Matthew Anderson. When they arrived in Ash County, they sought the help of the local sheriff in taking the baby, Winter Bear, from Bobby Bear. The sheriff advised them they needed to go and get a court order. So Yolanda contacted Bobby Bear, met with him at Bobby's father's home, and indicated that she wanted her mother, Letitia, to take the baby with her to California. Bobby Bear strongly opposed the idea of Letitia and her boyfriend, who is Matthew Anderson, taking the baby. And Bobby took a rifle and the baby to his sister's house. At his sister's house, Bobby asked his brother-in-law if he could borrow a gun. Bobby started to leave in his car, but a van was at the end of the driveway containing Letitia and Matthew Anderson in the front seat. Letitia would later say that she approached Bobby's car and she noticed he had a gun next to his seat. She asked him, what's going on? Where's the baby? And Bobby said that no one was going to take his baby. And Letitia returned to the van. Letitia heard a gunshot and then saw Matthew Anderson's face covered with blood. Bobby then threatened to shoot her. But Bobby's father came out and he took the gun away from the defendant without resistance. According to Bobby's later interviews, Anderson had taunted and threatened Bobby and told him to show Matthew the shotgun. 
Matthew grabbed the barrel of the shotgun when Bobby lifted it up. And Bobby claimed that the gun went off by accident when Matthew Anderson grabbed it. Bobby asserts that Matthew Anderson had provoked him into firing the weapon. So this happens in 1983. The trial doesn't take place for some time. Um, But Bobby Jean Bear is convicted of second-degree murder in this case. And Bobby Jean Bear was born on September 22nd of 1957. Um, And I do know that he was released in uh, 1995. So he would have been awaiting trial when what happened to Shelly Hart took place. So he could have had the car? Is is that what you're getting at? Well, I don't know what happened there. I would have to go through and see if there was a bond situation or if he was actually being held in Wilkes County Jail. Um, I read the full indictment on this case. He certainly gets out pretty early for a manslaughter conviction. Well, um, it sounds like, um, it's, it almost sounds like, uh, second degree, I think was too much for that, but you know, I trust the judgment of the system that was sitting there for it. Right. Uh, it sounds more like almost self-defense, but not really. Cause you can't, uh, shoot somebody cause they hurt your feelings. Um, well, allegedly Bobby was behind bars when it all took place anyways, but I, you know, um, Winter's alive. I've actually, uh, Okay. So was that the child uh, or did, did, uh, Winter's Bobby's child. Right. Brand, you, Brandy is Richard's oh, child. Okay. Anyways, that was sort of a after the fact kind of thing with, um. I feel like um, that actually works against the case they would have against um, Richard on the surface because it seems like they're just like, oh, those bear boys are troublemakers, right? <laughs> yeah, I just have trouble picturing you – know, and I'm not knocking anybody's theory here. I just have trouble picturing Richard Bear getting away with it for quite this long, if that makes sense. Uh, but nobody, like, I don't see anybody really mention the other murder. So that's why I wanted to throw that in here. That wouldn't have come up because, oh, you're saying in this case. Well, people talk about Sherry Hart and they talk about the fact that Richard Bear has been on the run. Like you can go and find multiple articles about that as recently as 2022. I assume he just has an open fugitive warrant. He's absconded. So they have him a couple different ways if anyone ever finds him. He definitely, like the SBI did a really good job in this case in that, uh, so they put him down as absconded from his misdemeanor probation. Okay. And they put him down as a wanted person for an open uh, wouldn't have been a warrant, open charge. And then they put him down for escape and flight to avoid prosecution. So he's on multiple radars. That covers him from a state perspective, a local yeah, perspective, and a federal perspective. I feel like 
uh, dismissing the charges against him was a mistake because uh, as time wait, passes, they dismiss them in a the way that they can charge. recharge them. I understand that, but as time passes, because it has been so long, when they look at that, they don't see that he's wanted for murder. Yeah, it does look like an absconding charge, though. Yeah, it looks like he's absconded. And that's way less than when you're looking for somebody that's murdered somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely so, agree with that. I don't know. There is no statute of limitations on murder, so I don't know why they did what they did, but I'm sure they had their reasons. Um, anyway, well, your story, that's interesting. Um, it's really sad that you got a guy that took, I mean, I assume because he was given guardianship, he wasn't the child's father, right? I don't know what the story is there. I do know that Bobby died in 2019. He died in January of 2019. Um <laughs> It, when you were reading it, it sounded to me like it was a situation where it wasn't his child. I, I can't tell. like Because you typically don't have to give guardianship to the father of the child. Like, they just have it, right? Unless there's something custodially going on there otherwise. Um, I think, okay, so apparently mom, Yolanda, was born in Manila. So there's some complicated stuff related to her citizenship. Yolanda? I don't, Yolanda. Yeah. Yolanda Cooley was from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I do not know the answer to any of that stuff yet. I don't, this case I might dig into a little more. Well, it, it is interesting. Um, it's sad that he had was taking care of the baby, I guess. And he was like, nobody's taking my baby. And then it really got out of hand. Uh, did they have, uh, custodial paperwork? Uh, like court paperwork? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was um, so some... they were given custody then? Which one? The parents. Uh, uh, Bob- Yolanda's, Bobby? Yolanda's mom and... They ended, up, they ended up getting it. Not the boyfriend. They ended up getting it. Um, Leticia ended up getting it. Okay. That's what I was curious to know. Was, yeah. Um, if so, when they went to get the baby, they actually had cause for it. Yes, although I don't know that it had a full court order on it yet. He, it kind of sounds like Bobby sort of baited them into something there, but I don't. I'm speculating. I see. Well, so the way that should have happened was, especially in this volatile situation, uh, the sheriff should have done it. That should have been part of it. If, if, if it was service of a court order, yes. But if it was an exchange, not necessarily. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like it could have been avoided. And um, wow, that guy was so childish to, well, one, the guy making fun of him or whatever he was doing. And then, you know, him reacting to it. That's really sad. All of it. Yeah. But, the, you know, this day and age, I mean, not maybe not, maybe not in the 80s, but today, like if somebody's got a gun, I'm not interested. In whatever you've got going on. If I see that you're carrying a weapon and I don't know you and I don't know why you have that weapon, I don't want anything to do with anything that's going on. Well, you're certainly not going to be like, show me your gun. Show me your gun. I mean, that's I'm ridiculous. Not, yeah. I, like, I like, yeah. Because that's what the guy was doing before he shot him. He was going, you know, oh, you've got a gun. Show me your gun. You know. Well, we've got a few more fugitives to wrap up Christmas. <laughs> Are you doing anything fun for Christmas, or do you know yet? I don't know. I'll be I'll be here with bells on. 
finished. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time. Christmas I'll be home